We're going to go today to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Um, as you do that first, again, if you're new here or watching online, my name is Ezekiel Velez. And as the beautiful first lady said, we have the beautiful honor and privilege to pastor this beautiful church community. You guys are awesome. You guys are beautiful in many ways. Um, together with my wife and, and the rest of our pastors and team here. And thank you for taking your time, not necessarily to be here with us, but you separated time. And I, we know that you're really here for God. And if you don't know that you're here for God, I pray that God will reveal himself in a special way. And he will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask, think, or imagine. But the foundation of all of that is he is that which is. He is the exceeding, the abundant, the more than we can ask. That's who God is. Amen? And so as you get ready to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we began the series, A Reason to Remember. And last week we began by establishing that we have to remember the past. And so this series is going to be counter what we typically do or how we typically think of the past. We, we always use the past as a ne with a negative connotation, right? Most of us are trying to get out of the past. And in many sense, this is true. But the problem is you throw out the whole past. Oftentimes, you throw out the lessons of the past. And if you throw out the whole past, oftentimes you forget God's saving hand in the past. If you throw out the whole past, then we tend to repeat the same mistakes. And then we forget to learn from them. And then we forget to teach even the error of our own past to the next generation. And so what we're also doing in this time, God's putting on my heart, that in many ways, the message that we have right now as a church is not for all the people that left during the transition. God transitioned them. God moved them. Some of them decided not to on their own. And so in many ways, this message is to the next generation. This message is almost more important to the youth of our church, to the children of our church. It's almost more important to them than it is for the older founding generation. We're about to retire, right, Daniel? Daniel's retiring at 35. I told someone yesterday, I will be good with another 10 years. I told someone yesterday, I used to, in my mind, I'm going to die preaching. Like, I'm going to die, like, on top of the Bible. As I'm, as I'm praying to heal someone and they're getting up, I'm going to go out in glory. Like, <laughs> I'm not going down without a fight of glory, right? And I used to have this thing that that's what I needed to do. Many of our leaders, we, we saw do that, and it was glorious. But I also learned that not everyone's life is a template for yours. And God has blessed our church with so many amazing people, so many leaders in the making. There's so many of you within our church now that I can see you pastoring and leading this church. And this doesn't mean that I'm going to die and put the, you know, that I'm going to, you know, retire and, and they're never going to see me again and move to some private island in the Maldives. I'm not saying that's what I'm going to do. I believe I will die speaking about the word of God. But the weight to pastor 
is a whole nother story. This is not the hardest part of pastoring. In many ways, this is the most enjoyable. This is where the gift comes out. If you're called to speak to God's word, if you're called to worship, the gift just comes out of you. The weight of pastoring is not this. This should be the joy. The real weight is feeling the weight with the people in their real lives. It's crying with people. It's guiding people. It's being available to people. It's being there in weddings. It's being there in funerals. That is where the weight is at. The real weight is leading a whole church and like I, I have to hear from God because if I'm not hearing from God, that's a lot of weight to make sure that you're in the will of God for the whole entire church. That's where the real weight is. Um, and so there's so many great leaders coming up. In, in a perfect world, I retire in 10, 15 years, <laughs> not from the word of God. I would love to die talking about the Word of God. I would love to open up the Bible Institute of TDP Church. I don't mind, you know, coming in on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. Who wants to talk about the Bible? Let's go through the Bible. Like, I don't mind doing that. While all the other, while all the other leaders do, do your thing and step into your, your glory. Amen. I'm just rambling there. But the point is that there is a generation that's coming. And there's not responsibility on one generation over only. Moses understood this, the power that what God wanted to do was too big to be contained to one generation. He knew that everything that God wanted to do with the people was not limited to his life. And because the sum total of all that God wanted to do wasn't dependent on him alone and his leadership and the elders at his time, he knew everything that God wanted to do could not fit in him. Therefore, he had to give the words of life and even the vision that God received to him, he had to give it to the next generation. But Moses also understood this. What God wanted to do was bigger than two generations. And so when he would speak, he would say, you got to even speak to your children. He was already mentioning a third generation. And in the end, what God wanted to do was beyond a third generation. It went from generation to generation to generation, and it got so big it wasn't even contained to the nation of Israel. God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty had the plan of the Gentile all along. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he opens up the door and says, this is how big the plan of God is. This is how big salvation is. It's not just for the Jew only, but for the Gentile. It's not for the man only, it's for the woman. It's not just for the male servants, it's for the female servants. And we're all here today. You thought you had... You coincidentally stepped in here? When he was talking to Moses about being in covenant with him, he was thinking of you and I. And to the women who have children in their wombs, he was even considering that generation that's unborn yet. That's how big our God is. So we have to remember the past. That's what we learned last week. You have to remember the past. Let's just read Deuteronomy, a beautiful book. Who did their homework? I'm not going to look. Amen. Let's just read in Jesus' name. Look at this. These are the commands, decrees, and laws Yahweh your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that, look, your children, 
and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping his decrees and commands that I give you. And why? And so that you may enjoy long life. The commands are not prisons. The commands are open doors to long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your answers, ancestors, promised you. Now, special attention on verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord Yahweh is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to beware on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, one of the longest sentences of the Old Testament. <laughs> Look at this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. That was a lot of stuff, right? How many of you already forgot it? He says, be careful that you do not forget Yahweh. See how important the principle to remember? We can't even remember the sentence we just read. <laughs> Let me read it one more time. Go back up to verse 10 because I already forgot it and I read it 30 times. <laughs> when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not what? Forget the Lord who brought you where? Out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Oh, you said in praise the Lord. Awesome. So there's a reason to remember because in many ways the past is meant to help our future. And so this might take a little paradigm shift in, in our heads but in many ways, our culture teaches you to grow up to forget the past. Amen? Forget the past. And so last week, we counter, we canceled that culture. <laughs> and we said, we need to remember the past. Why? Because in the past is God's grace. In the past is God's mercies. In the past is God's loving kindness. And in the past are the mistakes that cause some of the chaos 
And so therefore, it's important that we remember so we don't also repeat the past in many ways. And even the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, we ref- I'm just, this is just as a reference, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he begins chapter 10 by telling this New Testament church for them to remember what took place with the nation of Israel. And so even the Apostle Paul and the Apostles understood, you can't forget everything. You can't forget everything. At times it is traumatizing, at times it is storms, at times it's very dark, but we cannot forget everything. The significance of remembering the past is to remember in order we do not repeat the past errors and to remember God's grace in sustaining and delivering us. The danger of forgetting and erasing the past as sometimes is at the expense of of forgetting something that was significant. Here's a commentary that I want to use to help us transition. I don't have the name. It just was in a Bible commentary that I was reading. There was no name of the author but I thought it was profound and will make very clear. I begin the quote by saying, one of Satan's greatest strategies, listen, is to make us remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. One of Satan's greatest strategies is to make us remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. If we don't remember the past sins and rebellions against, oh God, we can easily repeat them falling into the same sinful patterns and traps, end quotation. And at times there are things that we should forget and not forget in the sense of having amnesia and to pretend like they did not happen. But in this sense, the context of forgetting, there are things that we should forget In the sense that many of us walk through life counting everyone's past offenses against us. They happen in the past, but we carry them into our future and into our present. And this is why many of us, 10 years later, are still bound by the pains of some of the past experiences. Because we didn't know how to bring them to God, didn't know how to trust God with them didn't know how to present our hurts and our uh, pains and our traumas before God. And so sometimes many of us, years, years later, are still living out moments that took place years ago. And so this is why I believe in the gift of counseling, and I believe in the gift of encouragement, and I believe in the gift of brothers and sisters coming together to talk. The Bible says, let us confess our faults one to another so that we may be healed. And in many ways, sometimes that's through the confession happens through talking about these traumas and talking about these situations and having someone that you can confide in. And in the confession of the past, it presents an opportunity for healing. And so what God ultimately wants to do is he wants to restore all of you, not some of you. God's not saying, hey, just get saved on this day, mark it down, and you got a ticket, and I'll see you one day in heaven. And he disregards the rest of your life, understanding that God is a God of realness. That was bad. But he's a God of intimacy with you, and he cares about you as an individual. He's not giving you a ticket for you to cash in later at the day of redemption in heaven. But he knows you. He knows you're going out, and he knows you're coming in. 
This is why the psalmist said, if I make my bed in the, you know, in the heavens, he is there. But if I make my bed in the hell, in the depths, in the deep, in the dark. So, you know, those great moments that I live and those terrible moments that I experience, God is there. He's in all of that. And so when God thinks of your salvation, it is to save you and secure you for all eternity. But he wants to be a very present help in trouble right now. And so he wants to go into your life, and he has the capacity and the ability to do so if we would surrender all of our life. We sang a beautiful song, if it's a fragrance, if it's a life. And so if we were to take that, that just, would that, that, those words just mean whatever it is that I need to give to you, then we're, the song is encouraging us to lay it all down. So if it's a fragrance, here it is, God. If it's my life, then here it is, God. And that's who God wants to be. He wants to be that real in your life. And so when we look into the book of Deuteronomy, God placed this message in my heart because we're about to make a transition and not just a change of direction, not just a change in on the compass, but we, we know that God is bringing us into many ways. It's a transition into a promise, and the promise has a lot of work. That's why we're also praying that you receive your rest now and you get your strength now, because when we get into the promise, it's not a vacation. It's not. It's, it's, it's not a vacation, and, and that's when we go into rest. No. In many ways, it's going to require more of us. I, I believe that. And so as I was reading Deuteronomy a couple of months ago, looking at Deuteronomy, the book is all about Moses preparing the nation of Israel to transition into the promise. And I was reading, and there were so many teachable lessons for us, specifically as the Dwelling Place Church, as a, as a church community, what God is doing we can take from, from this and do like Paul said to the Corinthians, go back and look to learn. Use the past to help your future New Testament church. New Testament church, look into the Old Testament church so that it can help you. And so as a church, we're exploring the book of Deuteronomy. And I hope, here's homework. Got another homework for you this week. Read the book of Deuteronomy. It's absolutely beautiful. In many ways, it is 30-something chapters, but in many ways, it's, it's, it's one sermon by Moses who's not going to enter the promised land, but he's preparing the generation that will. And what's beautiful about it is that you see the heart of Moses as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a preacher, as a prophet to the nation of Israel, and he's doing everything with in his power. He's doing this with all of his capacity. This is not a cheap sermon. This is not a short sermon. It's actually a really, really long sermon, but he's pouring everything that he has. He's giving this sermon with all of the strength that he has. He's giving this sermon with all of the soul that he has. He's giving this sermon with all of the heart that he has. Why? Because he loves God and he has grown to love the people. And so what Moses is actually doing, he's demonstrating. He's demonstrating what he's calling the people to do if they love God. And so if you were here on Thursday for Encounter Night, in many ways you already have heard the sermon. At the end of the service, I told Karina, it was wonderful. I have one complaint. She's like, oh my God, what? I said, you preach Sunday's message. 
<laughs> right, Karina? And I show you my notes and everything, and I tell my wife, I said, she's preaching Sunday's message. You know what happens in the moments when, preacher, when someone preaches their message like two days before? They either say, I need to get another message. I need to come up with something else. And that was a moment for me to say, I need to come up with something else. But I was able to translate, no, this is how much, it's, this message is so important to God that, that we'll, we'll say it again if we have to in many ways. And so thank you, Karina, for, for you being in the spirit of what God is saying to us. It's not limited to one person for God to say what he needs to say to the church. Amen? And so this is the heart of Moses. And so we, last week, were in Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 5, before the verses that we read, Deuteronomy chapter 5 ends with this. Deuteronomy 5, verse 32 and 33. Oh, so my title of my sermon is uh, Remember Obedience. Last week, remember the past. This week is remember obedience. Why? The theme of the book of Deuteronomy is a call to remember the past and a call to obedience in the future. You see that? If, if, if you look at what is the book of Deuteronomy all about, it's a call of remembrance of the past with a call forward to forward obedience. So Dwelling Place Church, here comes a teaching moment for us. As we go ready to transition the, out of here and go into, some of you are like, good riddance. No, do not good riddance the campground, nor good riddance the time of the building, the time that we were in the other building. Just because you come in and you're going to see new walls and new flooring and a new layout, don't say good riddance because there are lessons that happened there. There were experiences that we had there. And so we have to remember the past in order to secure us in God for the future. And what Moses reveals through the book of Deuteronomy, all of that has to do with our obedience. It's a call to obedience. Remember the past so that you can walk forward in obedience. Look how Deuteronomy chapter 5 kind of concludes. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Verse 33, walk what? In obedience. Walking, he is, no, he's, he's talking about going forward. Okay, he's not talking about a, back, a moonwalk backward. Also, the theme of, of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers those books, numbers, is how you get forward towards the promised land and the journey through the wilderness. And you will see as you read the Torah that the fear was we cannot allow the people to know that there's a route back. Because if we open the mind to return back, they, will, they themselves will tie themselves right back up into Egypt. And, and, and you see that throughout their journey of the wilderness. The minute that there was no water, we should have stayed in Egypt. The minute that there was no food, we should have stayed in Egypt. The minute they saw giants, we should have stayed in Egypt. That was like... And so Moses, in many ways, is calling them forward. Remember the past in that God delivered you from there, and he graced you, but you got to look forward as you remember the past. 
So you're remembering the past, but your feet are moving forward. And he's saying it's walking in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you. So what? So that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So it's a call to obedience, to obey everything that God has instructed Israel through Moses, but it's not obedience to rules and regulations that will enslave them as they were enslaved in Egypt. But we need to understand about all the rules and all the regulations that God gave specifically to the nation of Israel were that by them being obedient to them, they led to life, okay? The laws led to life. The reason why he also said, don't have no other gods before me, and when you enter into the land, do not worship the gods of the Canaanites, is because the Canaanites were living in a way that they had their own rules, they had their own laws, understand this, they had their own worship system, and you know what took place in their worship system? The parents sacrificed their children on the altars of these gods. So if you want to worship alongside with the other nations, know it will be at the expense of your children. And one of the first principles that God taught to Moses is that the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And there was even respect of blood within the animals. And so if you're going to eat them, do not eat, drink the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So we respect even the blood of life that God gave. And so if you're going to adopt and take on these worship systems, what will they lead to? Clearly, they lead to death. Death of generations. If you keep slaughtering your children, eventually there'll be no nation left. Right? If every kid ends up on the altar on Baal, what happens to the generation? And so what God is giving them, he's giving them commandments, instructions, his words, because his words won't put a child on the altar. It'll put God on the altar. It'll glorify God. And it'll lead to life, and then they'll live long and prosper in the land rather than cutting themselves off. And so commandments about blood and commandments about worship, and when you go through all the commands that they live, in many ways, when you obey them, Hear me. The obedience to them creates life. They create life. You do this, it will go well with you. Not because of superstition. The the laws are not tap your head three times, jump on one foot because Yahweh said so. Abracadabra, you are blessed. And the curses for disobeying are not step on a crack, break your mama's back. Abracadabra, They're not superstitious blessings and cursings. They are, if you do this, it will actually produce life. And if you disobey this, it will actually produce death. And God's desire is to bring them to possess the land so that they will what? 33, walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days, not sacrifice your days in the land that you will possess. So understand that the commandments, God's words, are not just rules to follow. They're actually wisdom that leads to life. Now I'm going to recall, we're going to remember Deuteronomy 4. 
See how backwards we're going? We started at verse 6 today, then I just read you something in 5, and I'm going to bring you back into 4. But Deuteronomy 4, 6 says this, Observe them carefully, for this will show, look, your wisdom and understanding to the nations. So it was God's intention that when Israel came out and they had a different, not just worship system, but a moral system, a way of life system that was so different than the other nations. When the other nations would look and look, who will hear about all the decrees and, and, uh, uh, and say, surely this great nation is wise and, and understanding people. The purpose was this. We live differently. We have a different set of Ways to live given to us by Yahweh who saved us. And when we live this out, when you flesh out the obedience to the commands, it produces life. Contrasting that with the nations who made their own gods, in many ways they are their own gods, and everything that they're doing is leading to death. The death of their children, straining in worship, cutting yourselves in worship, fighting with the land to produce for you in your worship system and with your deities. And so what it was supposed to do was supposed to contrast them against the nations around them. And then when the other nations look in and said, this is what was supposed to happen. What are they doing that they have life and we don't? We have a system of worship. We're making great sacrifices. We're, we're, we're sacrificing our children on behalf of these gods. And deep down inside, that is not fulfilling. Over time, you can only get a stone heart in order to do that, to appease your God. But within a human being, buried in the creation of who we are, we know that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so in great sacrifice and pain and trauma, they sacrificed their children on these altars. What they were supposed to do is see how the nation of Israel was not doing that and say, what great wisdom. Who is this God that you have? In many ways to us, the modern day church, all that God calls us to be in obedience in the New Testament is supposed to be a light that when the nations and our world is in darkness and when they look at us, they say, why is there love? Why is there peace? Why is there hope? Why is there assurance? Who is this God? What great wisdom do these people have? That is what's supposed to happen with us. How else are you the salt? How else are you the light? It's not because we have banners and megaphones all the time. We can have our banners and we can have our megaphones, but in all reality, it's supposed to go deeper than a moment of preaching. They're supposed to look at our way of life, our obedience to the commands of God as a way of life and say, who is this people? Sadly, that's not. They're like those crazy Christians over there. <laughs> that's the rep that we have, the crazy, religious, hypocritical Christians. Of course, we're going to be seen as hypocritical if we claim God but don't obey him. That's then the backfire of having the banner, the backfire of having steeples. That's the backfire of having a church brand that then we make ourselves loud, but there's no obedience behind the loudness. Then when the, when the rest of the nations look, they're not saying how wise, like, look how dumb. They're not saying light. They're saying hypocrites. They're not saying salt. They're salty. And so the whole theme of Deuteronomy is this 
It's a call to obedience because your obedience to it will distinguish your way of life from the other nations. There's a distinction between you. There are literally laws given about their food just to distinguish them down to the food. It's not that we're better. We're just obedient to our choices of food because somehow this is going to lead to life. And then later on you realize as a Spanish person, eating a lot of pork will kill you. like there's a reason why they didn't because God didn't just care about your spirit but he cares about your body and you gotta kind of curve I gotta kind of curve some of this stuff it will lead to me living longer just that principle right the principle of garbage food versus other clean food will allow me to live and prosper in the land that God has given me And the last thing I want to do is be a preacher of his word, but die at a heart attack because I couldn't control what did go into my body. Then I need a miracle at 45. And God's like, you ate yourself to this. Doesn't mean that he won't have mercy and compassion, but understand, you, you, you ate yourself to this and now you need a miracle. You lived yourself to this and now you need the intercessory prayer. I'm not saying that we don't do intercessory prayer, and I'm not saying that we don't pray for people that are sick. We do it all the time, and those are the questions we never ask. We're not going to ask that publicly. Not, when someone has come up to me and they say, hey, I need you to pray for me, I have never asked them, what's your diet like? I'm not necessarily called to do that. I'm called to be compassionate, cry, and believe for a miracle. What we should do and be big boys and girls is when you go home, ask yourself what you're eating. Ask yourself how long you're standing, how long you're sitting. Ask yourself, what is your way of life? This is why God's command went to the practice down to their food. Trust me, by no means am I, <laughs> is my diet completely glorifying to God, okay? I'm addicted to pizza and I need deliverance. So you have Deuteronomy, right? Look at this. You have Deuteronomy that's laying out all these laws. And as you're reading, like, oh, my God, blah, blah, this blessing, this blessing, this blessing. Oh, my God, this cursing, this cursing, this cursing. I can't remember that law from that. I can't remember that law. In the end, how many people know the book of Proverbs? It's, it's a book of what? Wisdom. It's actually described wisdom as a lady, lady wisdom. We wanted to throw that in the Bible study. A woman can't speak in the church, but the book of wisdom's name after Lady Wisdom. I don't know. Just throwing that in there. Not gentleman wisdom. <laughs> Lady Wisdom. She is beautiful. And, and, and the book of Proverbs, when you read it, it's almost like practical wisdom. It's like, oh my, it's, it's spiritual, but it's so practical. Don't go down that road, moron. <laughs> right? Like, don't go down that road. Think about that. Don't do this, right? Proverbs, in many ways, is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy. And that Deuteronomy is laying it out by rule and regulation to the nation. And then Proverbs, Lady Wisdom, is coming along. Because this is just practical wisdom, my kids. Like a mother speaking to us is Proverbs. And it's practically showing you why you need to obey. Whereas it's the heart of obedience in Proverbs, while Deuteronomy is the letter and the law of obedience. You have the letter, and then you have the heart of it, and that's beautiful. And so there's this huge call 
to obedience. And this would go for everyone. There was no one within the nation of Israel that was exempt from this. And so even though God is calling them as a nation, he's calling everyone individually to obedience. So therefore, the person in the community who was, on the, who was furthest away from the center temple is not saying, oh, it's the responsibility of the priest closest to the temple to be obedient. And so the person, even the high priest who will be closest to the Ark of the Covenant, carrying the blood of the sacrifices, trembling, hoping they don't die, who's representing all the people, obedience was called to that high priest, but obedience was called to the person furthest out in the, in the nation and in the community. And it didn't matter what your position, you were not excused from obedience. In many ways, those who were called as priests, as judges, and later as kings would have greater accountability to obedience. Okay? So for anyone who's desiring, like, I want to lead the church, I want to lead the way, revival in Kissimmee, you know, like, we can do that. And we can, and we can, we can pick that up. I'm not, the Bible's not against this. Jesus wants you to do that. But he wants you to, to understand that if you're given that much, there's a greater call of accountability and responsibility. You're just responsible for more people. You're in the eyes of the people, and the people are following our lead. And so the first king of Israel, the people begged God for a king. You guys remember this? They're like, we want a king like all the other nations. And you know what God did? He's like, I'm going to give you what you asked for. But I was your king. I was your king. I was leading you. But you want to be like the other nations? All right, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to anoint, I'm going to put oil on what you asked for. <laughs> we do this all the time with things. God, this is the car, I know. You get it? You oil it first, then you wax it. God, this is the man. You put oil on him, and then you... This is the lady. You put oil on her, bring her to church, right? You oil, oil them up in the church. Like, this is your will, God. I present him at the altar to you. <laughs> And so they do that with the nation. The, the first king is Saul. They anoint him with oil. God says, tells the prophet Samuel, go ahead, put the horn of oil on him. And now he's the king and he tells them, he warned, there's a warning. You're the king and it's great. And he was really happy. Saul was really happy when he got anointed. The Bible says he was happy. But in the end, he couldn't obey. It was a call to obedience and first in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you actually see God reject him because he didn't obey. One of the first things God called Saul and the, and the nation to do, their army, is go and annihilate the Amalekites. Just, they're they're going to be trouble to you if you don't do this. You, you allow this people to be here, it's going to backfire on you. And so there's a call to just take it all out. You know what Saul does as a king? He takes out everything, the animals, the, the, the man, he does all of that. But then he saves some of the healthy livestock. He's like, oh, this looks good. He doesn't take out the king either. He brings the king back. And when Samuel gets on the, on, on the scene, he's like, what is that noise that I hear? So I was like, I, I, I destroyed everything. He's like, I hear, I just stepped on something along the way. There's no way you destroyed everything. Saul so literally says, I destroyed everything but... You can't say you destroyed everything, but you kept this. And Samuel is like, 
You disobeyed already. You disobeyed already. And then you know what Paul says? Me and my men are going to sacrifice it to God. And they do these sacrifices. And you know what Samuel tells him? God, the Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and, sacrifice, and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? You think that your sacrifices can compensate for disobedience? Sacrifices don't make up, don't compensate for disobedience. Karina talked about this beautifully on, on Thursday, where it's like, I'm not necessarily going to obey all of that stuff. I'm just going to sacrifice and show my face in church. I'm going to sacrifice and give my money. I'm going to sacrifice and do this. God, I'm giving you all my time. And so we're, we're, we're sacrificing things, but we're only doing it to compensate for disobedience. And so you know what happens to the king, the person who's the highest? God rejects him. And then it shows the nation from the, from the beginning that not even your king, from the, from the least, whoever you want to call the least in this people, to the greatest has no excuse or has, has a less call of obeying. And you want to know how the rest of the nation did? Finish reading 2 Samuel and Kings. It was a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. A nightmare. And so as a New Testament church, Jesus becomes the fulfillment, right, of, of this law. Today we have salvation. You and I have salvation. Not because you and I got it right. And so we say, man, those kings really messed up. Like, they're just horrible. We're not any better, honestly. We're not any better. Anyone better? Start your own movement. We'll name the whole movement after you. Unfortunately, we're Christians because of Christ. And it's a Christian movement in Christ, Christo, the Messiah, the only human to fully obey Yahweh's law given. No one else did. Not a single person did. Not even me and you. And if you're thinking that another one might be able to do it, they're not. So this is why our faith and our whole belief is in him. And he fulfilled the law. Every law that God had given to him as a Jewish person. Jesus was Jewish, people. He was, he was born reading the Torah. He grew up doing the customs, the celebrations, everything. And Jesus fulfilled all of that law. Not just the 10 words, the 10 commandments, but the 600 plus that were given. He was obedient to the point of death. And so in that, when, I put, when we put our faith in the one who did, God in his justice, justice says, like Romans says, the wages of sin is, is death. And so we all, by our behavior and by our decisions, in the end, justice tells us that we get death. It's the cost of sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through who? The man Christ Jesus. And so what happens is us who all deserve death when we die and eternal condemnation, because Christ fulfilled it, he, he, becomes, he steps in our place. Not only did he just die, like he didn't just die. Jesus, he, did, he wasn't obedient and in an old age he died. He was obedient, and the Bible teaches us this, that on the, on the cross, all of our sin was imputed onto him. And so not, 
Now he's not just a man dying. He's not a Jewish man dying. He's dying, soaking up all of humanity's sin. And so then when he dies, he's not just experiencing death, but the sin is getting judged. It's all being judged on him, through him. But he takes it. It's like he swallows it up. He, he swallowed up the sin. But the amazing thing is that then he gets back up on the third day. And then they say, oh, oh, sin, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is, where's your sting at? Because the sinner that dies, death has dominion. But Jesus, righteous and dying, gets right back up. And he took our sin. So now this is why we have grace with the Father. Because as we're living out our life and we're, where there's a call to obedience for us, Jesus swallowed it all up. And this is why at our salvation or when we come to God, you've been justified and made right in the sight of God. This is not because of your perfection. It's because Jesus was on the cross and he went. And so now our lives, we do owe that to Jesus, to love him and to live for him. And the call to obedience is there. It's the same God that's calling us to obedience. And so Jesus, he was tested. The, the smart uh, teachers of that time, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, he said, Jesus, which is the greatest of all of them? You guys remember this? We can read it in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40. They, they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, they could have been referring to just the first 10, or they could have been referring to the whole law. They, I probably, I, to me, I think they were like, do you know all of the law? It's 613 of them, brother. Which one is the greatest one? Let's just put them on the spot. Which is the greatest one? And what does Jesus say? Now, what Jesus says, he doesn't just make up. Be very clear that Jesus is not just going to make up his own commandment. Not at all. Because Jesus was fulfilling. Jesus didn't abolish the law. He said to himself, I don't come to abolish, to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And so when they question him, what is the greatest? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three, four, five, the one about honoring your parents? Is it that one? Is it six? Is it seven? Is it not the stealing? Is it not this? Oh, how about the ones? Is it the dietary ones? Is it the one about uncleanliness and the spit here and the saliva over there? Is it Which one of those? Is it the tithe or is it the Sabbath? Which one? Is it this festival or that one? And Jesus is like, you're asking me about the letter of the law. He's going to pull a lady wisdom on them. And he's going to address the heart of the law. Yes, there's the letter, but what Jesus says, he reveals that more than knowing the 612, 13 of them by number count, he said, truly all of this stuff will be taken care of if it just gets in your heart, if you understand the heart of all of this. If you understand the heart, without even thinking of the law, you will be fulfilling the law if it really gets in your heart. And look, look at his response. And he doesn't even make this up, okay? Jesus in verse 37 replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Does this remind you of anything that we probably read like 25 minutes ago? And with all of your soul, does this remind you of anything that we read? That the book starts with a D. <laughs> 
and with all of your mind. Look, this is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. He's like, and there's a second one. They're like, ooh. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then look what he says. All of the law, the numbers, one through 600 plus, and all the prophets, great and old, major, minor, they didn't understand it. There was no such thing as major, minor in their minds, okay, but we, we do that. So major and minor prophets, look, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, the fulfillment, the weight of all of those are, are wrapped in, it's like, <sighs> the obedience is also wrapped in here. And what is he saying is wrapped in? It's wrapped in loving God and loving neighbor. If you just love them without you even knowing the list of them, you would obey them. Recently, because of my mother's health condition, me and my family, me and Pastor Michael specifically, are sharing the weight of taking her to her outpatient appointments. She has to go five days a week for her treatment. So me and, me and Pastor Michael will take turns from week to week. I'll take her three days, you take her two. The next week, you take her three days, I'll take her two. We're sharing the weight of that. Out of nowhere, I have three days that I never had before. I'm still doing everything that I need to do. I just had to adjust my schedule. I'm still doing, I'm not going to tell you everything that I do. It's not important. But what I'm saying is that out of love, right, I've made time for her. I'm just giving this as an example. Not once when I took her was I thinking of the fifth commandment. Not one time I'm like, I got to take your mom, get your wheelchair out, honor thy father and thy mother so I can live, a land, live long in the land. And not one time did I think, look, not one time did I think of the commandment. Not one time did I think of the letter of the law. Why? Because of love, guess where the commandment went? Because of love, the, com the, the obedience to the command was already in inside of me. And so w when you love and that's truly on your heart, you will obey. So this is why when they ask him, which commandment, one or 613, Jesus just said, love God, love your neighbor. Everything is in there. So when you start thinking of, I can't steal, I can't covet, if you just loved your neighbor, you would not steal from him. You would not covet that which, if you love God, you wouldn't worship another God. You don't even got to think of the, you, just because you love him, you're not thinking of, when you love this woman, you're not thinking of the other woman. When you love this man, you're not thinking of that. When you love your children, then they're your priority. No one needs to tell you, your house is important. When you really love, you should really love your wife, and you should tell her good things, and you should help out in the house, and you should pay the bills, and you shouldn't be lazy, and you shouldn't curse at her, and you shouldn't hit her, and you shouldn't talk down to her. You should feed your kids. You should give them a bath. You, those rules are true, but when you love, no one got to tell them to you. Honestly, if someone's got to tell you to feed your kids, you know that your heart is not there. Therefore, we need a commandment for you to feed your kids. 614, thou shalt feed your kid. You ever looked at like rules of different states? You ever did that? Like all these weird rules. 
Like, don't eat ice cream sitting on a car. It's a legit rule. You're like, why? Why would that even be a rule? Right? Like, don't lick peanut butter off a tree. Like, why is that even a, a rule? Isn't Lady Wisdom Common Sense tells you not? You know why? Because someone did it. Like, don't skateboard backwards with a siren on your head. Like, I'm making up some crazy ones, but legit, there are, there, like, go and, and just search. Crazy rules or laws in certain state laws. Search it. And when you read it, you're like, why is that even a law? It's because someone did it. And so laws are created when you go out of whack. But if you kind of just do things normal, you don't need that. Why do you need 613? Because you're, we're out of whack. They needed, they needed God to tell them not to do this or do this because we're that out of whack. But if we just loved and we were kind of like in tune spiritually, we would fulfill the law. And so Jesus fulfilled the law. Why? Because Jesus loved his father. He loved his father. And in the book of Deuteronomy, all of a sudden, boom, right? He, he gave it. Also, Jesus didn't make that up, all right? Jesus literally quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we read. Jesus was so immersed in the Torah and so immersed in the teaching that more than any other person or quotation or that, that Jesus quotes from, he doesn't go to Bible commentaries and rabbi scholarship. He quotes from the psalmist more than any other book in the Bible. Number one, Jesus, the, the, the most amount of quotes are from the book of Psalm, Deuteronomy, and then Isaiah third. So when you're seeing and you're reading the New Testament, you're seeing all these quotation marks, you should have footnotes on your, in your, maybe your Bibles or on your app. Click on them and you're going to see all the references to Psalms, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. He quotes other places, but those are the most thought that was kind of cool, little nerdish for you. But what we read in Matthew chapter 22, he went to Deuteronomy there. When they said, what is the greatest commandment? He went to the heart of it, not just the letter of it, not just the number of it, the heart of the law. Deuteronomy 11, when you get there, oh my goodness, he starts laying down the instructions and, and don't think of them as prisons, that everything to obey or everything to do is a prison cell. Remember, the foundation of the law is that they lead to life. And when the other nations look in, they're supposed to say, wow, they're so smart. I've been so foolish. Why are we living like this? What is your God's name? Yahweh. Yahweh, never heard of him. What did he do? Oh, he, oh yeah, the people that, he just, that destroyed Egypt. I'm not messing with y'all. Sure, come over here. And you will, see, you will see neighbors not even mess with them. And then other people that would kind of like buck at them, <laughs> Yahweh would be like, Moses, get them. <laughs> Annihilate the Amalekites. <laughs> Let's read Deuteronomy 11 verse 1 and then read Deuteronomy verses 26 to 31. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. So there is a theme again. This is all throughout Deuteronomy. So, but it's on the foundation of love. So when you read obey, do, you're like, oh, this hurts. But, but Yahweh is telling them, on, in loving you will obey. 
It's not hard to serve breakfast for my life, to my wife who I love. It's not hard to wash dishes when I know that, okay, she's working. And it's not hard. I'm not like, what is the commandment again about this? I don't make my bed because I'm scared she's going to come and zap me for not doing it. Like, I could pick up my own clothes, make my food, make her food. And it's cool because you love that person. There's something enjoyable about serving someone when you love them. The question that you have to ask yourselves, if coming to church and doing the ministry that you do pains you and hurts you, the real question is not, and you're like, what commandment? What time I got to be there? What time I got to do this? Why they always... If you love the ministry, and if you love God, and if you love your husbands, your wives, and your children, your families, then it'll be a joy to serve. But if you're serving dinner, like, here's just sloppy Joe, extra sloppy. Verse 26, 11, see, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if what? The blessing if you, Deuteronomy 11, verse 26, y'all have it? I'm sorry. Maybe we don't have it for you. I'll read it. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today Verse 28, the curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following, look, other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerasim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. You might remember that in Joshua. When they, when they actually cross over, half the people go on one mountain, half the people go on the other mountain. There, there's like these little, not really huge mountains, but there are these mountaintops. And, and then they're in the middle, there's about a, a mile in between. It creates like this ample theater. So one people, they would say a blessing, and the people would say, amen. And then the people would say the curse, and they'll say amen. It was like them just agreeing to the, to the, to the terms of the covenant of blessing and cursing. Like, if we do this, we're blessed. If we do that, we're cursed. Yeah. We agree. Like, um, as you know, verse 30, as you know, these mountains are across the Jordan westward toward the setting sun near the great trees of Morah and the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. He's just telling them, you know where those mountains are, right? Right? You guys don't know. Okay. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that, look, verse 32, be sure that you what? Obey all the decrees and the laws I am setting before you today. But if you go back to verse 1, it starts with not obey, do, you know, prison. No, it starts, verse 1, was love the Lord your God and keep his requirements. And so when you do this out of love, naturally you will be in obedience to God. You take out the love, that's where the problems really come in. And so what did Jesus pull on? He pulled on Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Now, the reason why when we were reading this in the beginning, I told you, hey, focus on these here. Because Deuteronomy 4 and 5 have become those verses, what Jesus quoted 2,000 years ago for thousands of years, have become a prayer that is still repeated day and night till this day. Someone made these prayers today. And there's a group of people that will make that prayer Tonight, in observance of this, not even command, but the heart of the command. Understand that Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, is not the command. It's the heart of the command. 
It's the heart of the command. This is why when they asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment, he said, before you talk about the count number, let me talk to you about the heart of this. Because then what you will see, if you get the heart right, you're going to obey all of it. And then all of it, in a sense, becomes great. But it begins on the foundation that you love. And so today, Orthodox Jews, till this day, in the morning and in the night, with their children, as individuals, say this prayer. I'm going to read it again. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord Yahweh is one. Love the Lord Yahweh your God, look, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Till this day, probably this morning, thousands have shared this prayer. And in the night, they will repeat and do that. I think that's just beautiful. It's beautiful. The key is that the good habit to do so only means something if the heart is there. Because if the heart is taken out of it, then it's just obeying the commandment. And you can only obey by command for so long. You can only be good for so long, right? You can only keep yourself in check for so long. Today, I want to suggest to you, love endures forever. Love endures forever. And so, obedience to the commands really begin on the foundation of if you will love God and fall in love with Him. Him telling them to love God is not the command because you can't command that. He's, he's just revealing the, the, the greatest truth to someone who wants to obey and follow this God. If you want to trust Yahweh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really rely on if you're intimately in love with Yahweh. That's, this is what he's trying to convey to them. It's like, yeah, I got a list of all these commands, but it's really that if you love God, if you love him. And so with this, verse 4 to 5, has, has, has this prayer, this recited prayer, is called the Shema. We talked about it on Thursday, the Shema. And where it gets the name from is the first word of verse 4. Do we have it up there? Can we put the Shema up there? And the first word that says, hear, O Israel, the word here is Shema. And so they named the whole prayer, the two verses, according to the first word of the prayer. And it's Hebrew word Shema, which literally means hear or listen. But what's special about the word is that it just doesn't mean hear as in a sound wave coming in. You start to understand it better when you, when you know what the word listen means, right? How, how many of us say this? I know you're hearing me, but are you listening? Listening implies that you have understood and received what you heard, and therefore actions are being taken to what you heard, and then we would say, you are listening. I think after, the, the number, word that, number one word that parents say to children as they're growing up is stop, and then the second phrase is, are you listening to me, or you're not listening to me. 
And what's interesting, right, as we were reading in Deuteronomy, how many of you remember, just a series about remembering, just say yes. How many of you remember as we were reading some of those other verses where we read a word obey? You guys remember that? I hope you remember that. And so when you read Deuteronomy, you will see words that say obey. You want to know something fascinating? There is no Hebrew word obey. There's no Hebrew word obey. The word that we read in obey in English is actually the same word, shuma. So what this teaches you is that to the Jewish people, this nation, when they said listen, it implied obey. There's not a separate word that you get to hear and then do or don't do. It carries the connotation that as you hear, those words become weight, and then you act, and then you automatically listen. You will get in motion and do what is being asked or what you heard you were supposed to do. And so hear, listen, and obey. It's a good translation in English, but understand that the word obey was not. So it would say, hear, O Israel, right? Shuma, O Israel, and make sure you obey, O Israel, in English. But what it's really saying is, Shuma, O Israel, and make sure that you Shuma, Israel. That's how it would sound in Hebrew. Listen, Shuma, and obey, Shuma. Get it? Got it. <laughs> And so the whole prayer is called the Shema, which is on a foundation of what? O obedience. So when you look at the whole book of Deuteronomy, a call to remember the past to a call forward to obey. Literally the whole book of Deuteronomy, you could call, it could have been called the book of Shema. I think that would have been a better name for the book of Deuteronomy. That's just my personal opinion. Because Deuteronomy is just a Greek word that means second law. And the reason why it's called second law is because Moses recites the second law. Right? So he's just giving it to them again. He already gave it to the prior generation. This is a new generation about to go in. I think that would have been cool. Hey, I'll talk to God about it when we get to heaven. Shema. All right. And so it begins with here, right? The Lord our God, uh, the Lord is one, Yahweh. And then verse 5 says, love. The Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Now we're going to look at those words next in Hebrew. We're going to look at love. We're going to look at soul, heart. Oh, we're going to look at love. We're going to look at heart. We're going to look at soul. And we're going to look at strength in Hebrew because they're beautiful words. We could put them up there. So here, listen, is Shuma. Love is Ahava. Just think of Ahava. Ahava. That's how I remembered it. I was like, I kept forgetting it throughout the week. I'm like... Ahila, what? And it was like, aha, fa. Got it? And so when, you, when we read love the Lord with all of your heart, when you hear love, it's a Hebrew word, ahava, which it's a word used just to express love and an affection. And so this Hebrew word is used throughout the, 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 the Old Testament when it's talking about someone loving this person, someone loving that person, and this husband loved this woman, this woman loved this husband, and this friend David loved Jonathan, and they loved each other. It's this word, ahava. But the beautiful thing is that it's not just affection of love. In today's modern world today, if we bring love, mo most of us interpret or we use the word like affection, just affection. 
But for the people and, and for God, love was more than an affection. It was not just words of affirmation. I love you. It literally was love in action. And so affection is not just my word to you, but it's my, my, my being with you. If you say, I love someone, it should imply not that it's just words alone, right? But that the love, the affection creates some kind of relationship, some kind of communication, some kind of look, some kind of touch, some kind of feeling, some kind of action that the love is not just words, but it's one of manifestation. And so what Moses is telling the nation to do is not just to love God in word. It's to love God with ahava. It's, it's a love, right, that, that takes action. And it's not just because when God loved them, right, when he remembered them, when they cried out in Egypt, his love, his affection came towards them, the Bible talks about. He had affection for them. It wasn't just love in thought. It wasn't just love in word. It's love in manifestation. And so he's saying, Yahweh, your father, your savior, he loves you with affection. And that implies that he loves you and he moves towards you. It's a love that has movement. It's a, a, a love that has weight that you actually feel. You feel God's love and how he uh, 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 has relationship with you as a people, now I'm asking you to love in that same way back to Yahweh. And so when you love him, you can't just say it with your words. It can't just, it can't just be a word, we love you, Yahweh. There has to be actual affection that he feels. How does God feel your love? It will be through your Shema. Through your obedience, the, the obedience is showing God. The obedience is the action of the love. So when you love God, you, 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 your love will be manifested in action. And what he's saying, that manifestation will be, will be obedience to him. So you can say, oh, he's talking to the nation of Israel. Well, today, church, New Testament church, Know that God didn't change his love towards us. The Bible says that even while we were still yet sinners, he demonstrated his love. He manifested his love. Yahweh, through Jesus Christ, is still affectionate in love towards us. It's not just love in word, it's love in action. John 3, 16, should we be reminded of, for God so loved the world? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. He didn't just say he loved you. For God so loved the world. He didn't just think about you. But for so God so loved the world that he gave. Ahava. It's a love that is expressed through affection and action. And then he says, with all of your what? Your heart. Ah. In Hebrew, this is lev. This beautiful. Lev. It's actually a shorter ver uh, version of the word, but that works. Lev, your heart. Now, with us in our modern day understanding and our, I would say, our biological understanding, we understand that where thoughts and where process happens. 
when my wife was studying for her, her profession, she did a lot of psychology and things like that. And um, th- th- you learn that, th- that certain parts of your brain serve towards certain functions of your understanding. And there's this, I don't know them. Don't ask me. She went to school. Ask her afterwards. But right, there's a part that does this and there's a part that does that. One specific part has to do with your judgment and your decisions that are being made, which is separate from another part that maybe does something else. That's, that's just amazing. That's fascinating to know that we understand that biologically and psychologically. And so we also know that we have, right, so you have your brain, you have your mind, and we, we also know we have our heart, right? And what is our heart? Our heart for us is this organism that pumps, right? Uh, and we know that it serves a physical function within the body and it's pumping blood through the vessels and all that good stuff like that. But we, in our world, right, we use it as connotation of your feelings, right? Where oh, either your, your heart broken or, or, or you have so much joy and excitement and, you know, your heart lights up, whatever expressions we want to use. And so we, right, in our today, we have a separation between the heart and the mind, right? My mind is what we would say is where my thoughts are. My heart is where my feelings are. I want you guys to understand that the Hebrews didn't understand it like that. They put great emphasis on the heart, And for the Hebrews, in their understanding, in their world, the heart is also where the thoughts were. Yeah, they knew that they had a brain as an organ, but it was, okay, it's a brain there, awesome, wonderful. But the depths of human mind was actually in the heart. Lady Wisdom explained this for us. This is why she said, as a man thinks where? In his heart, so is he. We would never use, I would say, as you think in your brain is how you are, right? But for you to understand that the heart for the Hebrews and their understanding and their worldview, it was in your heart, not just where your feelings were alone. Yes, your feelings, your emotions, your joys and stuff like that, but also your thoughts were here. Your thinking was here. Both the emotion and the thought all proceeded out of the heart. Lady Wisdom also said, guard your heart, for from it all your life flows from it. You remember when she said that? Even your decisions are not made here, they're made here. David said this, renewing me a clean heart. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked above us. Who can understand it? I can't understand how it's thinking. Because for them, the heart is where also the mind was in many ways. Ezekiel said, give me a new heart. Take out the heart of stone and put one of flesh. Jesus said, what goes into a man doesn't defile him, but what comes out of the heart. And then Jesus went on to say, in that heart is evil thoughts and desires and adulteries and fornications. So Jesus was saying, the evil thoughts come from where? Your heart. He was pulling on their worldview that that, that the thoughts and everything was here. And so what we got to understand when Moses is saying, love God with all of your heart is not just your feeling only. It's your thoughts as well. It's your thought processes. It's your decisions. It's your understandings. Because from it, guard it. Because this is where the springs of life come from. Or it's either springs of life that are coming out or thoughts of deceitfully wickedness that no one understands. So he says, give that. And then this is another one. He says, and, and with all of your soul, the Hebrew word is nephesh. What a word. How many people know, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul, what? Panteth or thirst for you. It's as, as a deer panteth for the water, so does my, my, my nephesh. 
pants and desires you. This is important to understand. We, in our understanding of things, right, we always look at man like the Trinity, and we say man has a body, mind, soul, and spirit. And, and, and to a certain context, that is, that is correct. But for the Hebrews, what they understood, they did not separate the soul as a third piece of the Trinity of man. For the Hebrews, man was not body, soul, and spirit. Man was a soul. He does not have a soul. Man is a soul. So, so, so understand that when you're reading, that's what they understand. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God formed him, it says, And God formed man from the what? The dust of the earth. And he breathed into his nostrils the what? The breath of life. And man what? Became a soul. And so the way how they understood a soul is how we understand the word being. You're a human being. And within you, yes, is your mind and your heart and your emotions and your body and your spirit, however we would like to break it down. But for them, they, you, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. So when, when it says, as a deer pants for the water, my soul, it's not a third of me pants for you. It's, 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 it means all of me, all of my being is thirsty for you. When God created him, he's going to say, great, you got a soul now, and you got that body, and then I'm going to give you a spirit, and now that third piece of your Trinitarian state is now complete. No, he said, all of your being is now complete. And so when Moses is saying, love God with all of your soul, he's not saying, love God with a third of you, with just one third of you. He's saying, all of who you are. All of who you are. And the last word, with all of your strength, me'od. Say that with me. Me'od. Me'od. We, we, we translate this word in English to strength. This is the one time in the Bible that the Hebrew word me'od is actually translated as strength. Nowhere else in the Bible. So that means it must be very special. It's not the one time that it is used in the Bible, but it's the one time that is translated as strength. And I think the English translation or some of your Bibles, if you have an older version, it might say might, strength or might. I believe it's a good translation to help us understand. I think it's because of our, how we use that word in our modern day English. It's, it's a good translation for us, but the word mayot is actually an adverb. It's an adverb that is used before a word to give superpower to the word, so to say. It's to bring power and, 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 and more emotion and more feeling into it. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, the last verse of the chapter says that God had finished creating everything on the sixth day. When he made the first five days, you know what God said? He saw that it was good. When he finished the sixth day, you know what he said? It was it was what? It was me'od good. So me'od actually means very or much. And so you use me'od to, to, like, you can be happy or you could be me'od happy. You could be happy or very happy. You can be sad or you could be very sad. So when someone says, how you're doing? I'm good. When someone says, hey, how you doing? I'm really good. It's kind of how we use the word really. I'm really mad today. Not just mad, really mad. Um, are you hungry, babe? I'm really hungry. You know when really comes out. I'm very hungry. It's different than I'm hungry. I'm very hungry. 
And so you see that when God created everything, one through five, it's good. But when he finished creating man, that's very good. May old good. The Bible says that then in, in Genesis chapter chapter 4, that Abel offered the sacrifice and God was pleased with the sacrifice, but then he, had, he, he did not have respect for Cain's. And then it says Cain became, became what? Cain became what? Do you guys remember? God had respect onto Abel's, but God rejected his. Cain became very mayod angry. He became very angry. And so... Mayot is an adverb that's used in front of words to heighten their emotion, to heighten their, their meaning. And so when he ends the prayer, he says, do this with all of your mayod. Mayod means very, it also means much. Now, this might sound weird, but what he was really saying is, you got to love God with your, you, got, you have to love him with all your heart, your left. You got to love him with all your soul, not a third of you, all of you. And you have to love him, in English, with all of your strength, with all of your capacity. In many ways, it means very or it means much. So you got to love God with all of your muchness. Now, it sounds funny, but doesn't it make sense? Love God, not just love him, but with your mayod, with all of your capacity that you have in you. So not just regular love, a lot of love. Not just with some of your heart, all of your heart. And so the English word that we get translated is with your strength. And so when you're saying, I did, I did it with everything that I had. That's the kind of mayod. Because the word strength, there's a different word for Hebrew for regular strength. It's not talking about this kind of strength. It's talking about loving him with, to all of your capacity, your very, 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 very being, your muchness, whatever you have. That's what the call is. And so when you're loving God like that, You, 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 you'll just walk in obedience. That kind of love, that kind of heart, that kind of soul, that kind of strength, you're going to walk in obedience. But if that's not there, the journey to obedience is going to feel like law after law after law after law after command after command. What I got to do now, what I got to do now. So Deuteronomy is a call to obey, but more so it's a call to love God. Remember the past. Remember to love God. And as you do that, you're going to walk out in obedience. And he, he allows them to choose that. For your homework, read Deuteronomy 15 through 20. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. Read it for your own homework. As, the, as Deuteronomy starts to conclude, you're going to see... He's like, today I said before you life and death. You choose. He's going to say, you choose. I'm, I can't make you love. Obedience that leads to life, which is really love that will lead to life. And then you will have life and you'll live long in the land. And everyone around you, the world is going to be like, wow, look at him. And when they ask you, wow, you're super good. The response should be, it's not that I'm trying to be good. I just love God. 
wow, you're really good to your mom. I'm not trying to check off points to her. I just love my mom. When someone says, you're such a good mom, say, yeah, I got the parenting book. On page 37, it says to cook for them. You say, I just love my kids. In many ways, that's the heart of obedience to God. I'm in love with God. I'm done. Let us stand and let us pray. I believe as we make this transition and whatever transition you're in in your life, you could be ready to maybe be, you, maybe you feel you're stepping into something new God has for you. Maybe you're in a journey or maybe you're trusting that God will make a transition. We're all in different places. Maybe some of us transition. Maybe some of us are mid-transition. Maybe some of us are praying. I believe this is true for no matter where you are at. That you loving God will make the difference that your life needs. Whether you know the capacity of that almost doesn't even matter. Because some of you are in places and you have details that you're wondering about. Some of you know you need a transition, but you don't even know what to transition to. You're feeling something needs to change, but you don't even know what to change to. So whether you know or you don't know, the foundation of loving God will be the thing that will help you walk forward and I believe will lead you into that which God has or he desires for you. And I can't know what that is. That is for you to pray about. That is for you to present to God. That is for you to search. And none of us are all transitioning into the same thing in our personal lives. As a church, yes, we're, we're making a transition. So we all need that word together. But individually, how God sees you, wherever you're at, whatever you're passing through, I believe falling in love with God can and will make a difference no matter what it is. And then you walk in forward in that love and trust. Not with some of you, not with half of you, not with a third of who you are. But with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for your presence that is with us. I thank you for every life, for every family. We thank you for our church community that is here. Father, you see us as one body, but you also see us as one individual, Lord. Father, as a church community and body of Christ, I pray that you will help us in our transition, that we'll be able to reflect on your, on your word and fall in love with who you are in our prayer time, in our study of you, and as a community, Lord, that we would just be in love with you, Lord. And Father, that in love, helping us to fall in love with you, because in the end, that will lead to obedience, Father. I pray for every person individually, the journey that they're on. Father, you know where they're at. You know if they're in joy or they're in pain, Lord. You know if they're on a solid foundation of, of, of what the future looks like. If, but you also know if someone's on shaky ground and is just absolutely confused right now and doesn't even know where to turn or what to do, Lord. Father, today, Father, as we pray, I know that falling in love with you will make the difference not of a moment, but of a lifetime, Lord. So, Father, 
Help us, help me return our hearts to you. We turn our souls to you, Lord. We give you our strength today, Lord. Father, we thank you for the grace. We do not forget the past, Lord. We do not forget your saving hand, your hand of mercy over us, Lord. And help us to walk forward in love, Lord, not turning from the left or the right, but in obedience unto you. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for being with us. We trust you. In Jesus' name, we say amen. Amen. God bless you guys.